Hello and welcome to this very special Stages podcast mini-series. I'm your host, Peter Ayers. It's World Pride 2023 and the Queer Globe is converging on Sydney, Australia to celebrate diversity, inclusion, community and fabulousness. To mark this momentous event, the Stages podcast is saluting the cast of captivating drag divas and personalities who have been featured on the podcast during the past five seasons. They are artists who have appeared on national and global stages, thrilling audiences, making a difference, healing community and expressing unique and wondrous talents. We spotlight these episodes so you can savour a second listen or so you can sample the delights of these entertainers for the very first time. A diva a day for each day of World Pride. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages. I started dressing up in drag at home at Christmas parties and birthday parties. Everything around me, I was like a sponge and I still am. Incredibly observant incredibly visual. Well, always, because like I said, I danced, um, you know, from the age of five until I left France to go to the to the army. Take a, a script and you sort of reinterpret it. You have to be so careful. And then we decided on Mitzi, it was going to be Mitzi Maguire or Mitzi Mayhem. I used to choreograph the drag shows for the drag queens, so I got to know them. Well, and behold. The next morning when I wake up, here's my face on the Daily News. <laughs> and to this day, people go, oh, Bob Down, oh. And there were these dance steps called shoe the ducks and dry your nails. And I sat there for weeks learning how to do my face. Get me on a microphone, half pissed and just like in a room full of people that are halfway there themselves. And then I remember when I was five, I wanted to go to this party as a fairy. I have to be able to put as much of my soul into it as possible. Lee Gordon named me Carlotta. Lee Gordon was a big promoter who actually started the drag queen shows off in Australia. I'd do it all again in a heartbeat, but I'd do it a little bit different next time, I think. I'd be, I would be more prepared for what I was. I mean, I was just someone from the suburbs that went to King's Cross. Hugh Monroe has been delighting audiences since childhood in a range of entertainments. A long resume demonstrates success and exuberant performance across stage, television, drag performance and audiovisual production. As a child, Hugh appeared in productions of Shakespeare, directed You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and flew across the skies as an impish Peter Pan. You may recall Hugh as a congenial presenter on the highly popular television show Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, a news program produced for a youth audience in the 1980s. At the other extreme, you might have been witness to his antics as the regular host of the piano bar at the iconic Albury Hotel on Sydney's Oxford Street. Hugh could sing on his head on the piano. His skill in drag has also allowed him forays into the musical theatre joy of pageant and la cage folle. Hugh is passionate, excitable, cheeky, and he enjoys nothing more than to engage and entertain an audience. This conversation took place in August 2020. Testing one, two, how are you, Hugh? Very well indeed, and um, I was thinking that it 
probably hasn't happened before that you've interviewed a character rather than a person. So if you wanted to interview the wonderful Hugh Munro, the fabulous Hugh Munro, instead of just dreary old Hugh Munro, <laughs> what, what we do you could mean? bring her out. What do you mean? There are a few Hughes. Yes, because there's just me, who you know very well. Yes. But then there's the, the fabulous Hugh Munro, who's Sh the drag lady. Oh, right. You, so your drag persona was yeah. called Hugh Munro? Yeah. Right. And she what? has different spelling to me, you see. Why didn't you um, so give yourself a... That's her. A girly name, a female name. Yeah, she is. Oh, you've well, got CDs and See, the Caravan Park, and... she was called all sorts of oh, things. Oh, right. But she was always Hugh Munro, and the spelling's different, you see. Oh, and the spelling's so. different to enhance the um, autograph. Because right. whenever I'd sign anything for anybody, I wanted a dynamic autograph. So that's certainly dynamic. Yeah. It looks like it looks like the ha the opera house. Well, because she's from Sydney. So oh, it is the opera house. I is. thought it might have been a wig. Well, it is a wig, but it's this in the shape of this opera house. Oh, it's a double double edge. Double entendre, which is what see. It's all branding. It's what I do. Yes, we. Yeah, do it was. It. She's from Sydney, and she has double meanings. Oh, there's a better version. The coaster. You were coasters as well. Co there are thousands of them. We used to give well, them out all the time. Oh, you'd give them out because I play in pubs, you know. Right, and would people take them home? Oh yeah, so I pub uh, they they people used to ask, "Can we have another box? We've run out. Can we have another box?" And I'd have to just keep printing them. And they preferred these. People loved those. So I got so many jobs from them because it lists everything I can do on there, and there's the phone. All oh, right, give us a look. What, so. what what can you do? You're a cabaret performer, spontaneous comedy. Well, we look forward to some of that today. Mm. Characters, celebrity impersonations, wide experience in all media as a host, yeah. actor, singer, producer, presenter, MC, solo, duo, production shows. My God, you do everything. Everything. Yes. And I have done all of those things and even more. You're versatile. Cleaned up afterwards. <laughs> so you don't leave a mess. <laughs> no. Very good. Never leave a mess. It was something I was, you know, it, it was in. Yeah, what's the word? It was uh, embossed ingrained. on me, engraved, yep. ingrained. ingrained yeah. yeah, from working at the Independent and, and at the Genetian, you just never left a mess ever. You know, where you went in there and you did whatever you had to do, and then you left it as you found it for the next people. For the next people, the yes, yeah. So I've always been like that. So I never even leave a feather or a sequin behind. Especially in clubs. Well, they're expensive. Because people talk about you, I suppose. If you, if you leave a feather or a secret. Yes, because I remember how Sigourney and I used to get into a club and we'd talk about the people who were there before and we'd see if we could guess who it was from the vest. Because very, very rarely did they clean backstage in clubs, which is one of the many reasons I don't like doing the clubs. There's so many things that don't happen. You know? well, is a sequin like a, a fingerprint for a drag queen? Oh, <laughs> yeah, we used to laugh about whether it was Jeannie Little's sequins or Mary, Maria Venuti's sequin or whose sequin was it? Was it Rhonda Birchmore's sequin that was left behind? <laughs> but it was never ours. Because <laughs> you'd always cleaned up. We cleaned up. Well, it, it's lovely to, um, to have you at last on the podcast because I'd spoken to you year ago or more saying are you gonna, will you do it one day yes and i never thought i was significant enough for you to even bother but, but i go just... back in my history and i think oh no i probably am you know because uh, people like rupaul talk about being on brand yep. and having the 
you know, all those creativity, uniqueness, nerve and talent and things. And I go, I used to have all that. Yeah. I mean, I have a brand. I have a, a logo. I had, I was an ABN, you know, proprietary limited before company. Before anyone else. Before anybody else. And people used to hate me yeah. because they go, oh, here comes that professional drag queen again. Mm. And that doesn't really fit in with the drag queen scene that used to be around in the 60s and 70s and here I came along beaming like a company handing out albums and CDs and coasters and (laughs) business cards and you know people going who is this person well everyone I speak to on the podcast is significant you know because of the various um, aspects of the industry that they've covered whether it's on stage behind stage oh yes and I think you know in Australia you really have to do everything because otherwise you're really in a niche and that that niche isn't going to feed you and buy your house unfortunately respect is something which is a great thing that you find overseas when you go overseas you see and you suddenly feel the respect for the industry that you should feel here and when you come home again and you know people just don't care that you had success overseas Um, unless they heard about it somehow. And so there's no respect in that, res- in that respect. In that respect. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to deal with that in your own head, you know. You go, why don't people understand here how fabulous I am, yeah, you know, right. when they do overseas. You well, know. you're going to tell us. We're, <laughs> going to, we're going to talk about that today. Now, listen, I, I give all of these episodes a title. So I've just been umming and ahhing about what the, what the title of your, this episode is going to be. So maybe you can chip in. What about with Hugh on my arm? Oh, that's lovely because like that, that? that reminds me of when we were together, of course, in La Cage Fall, one of the most marvellous productions. That's, that's when I'd met you. I'd seen you on stage from afar a few times. So it was an absolute delight to um, have you as my stage buddy, my, my stage husband. It was because you're extremely professional too. So I really appreciated how you went about your rehearsals and the ethics that you brought to your performance. And I think that's why we really clicked so well from day one. Yeah, because I've seen quite a few productions of La Cage Fall and I think, what were they thinking? You know, when you take a a script and you sort of reinterpret it, you have to be so (gasps) careful because, you know, when you get sloppy around the edges, it really suffers. I think, and we did a very traditional version, which was so, which I was so proud of. Oh, it was wonderful. We had we had a great time. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I've, I've also I borrowed from that show a little more mascara. <laughs> Do you like that as a title? <laughs> yes, of course, because that's what it's all about. I mean, I have had so many instances where I've had to put on a little bit more mascara, and I've had no mirror, absolutely no mirror. Can you imagine being oh, a performer that who number. plays characters, yeah. and then you're presented with a dressing room with no mirror? If you have a dressing room at all, usually in Australia, you're lucky if you get a handicapped toilet and that's where you're supposed to put your thousand dollar costume. Well, at least it's bigger. You've got more room. <laughs> but no privacy. <laughs> Are you finished in there yet? I've got a wheelchair waiting out here. And you go, well, where am I going to put everything yes, while they're I in here? I haven't put the lashes on yet. Yes. And what if they, you know, have an accident all over my costumes? Mm. So, yes. What about, what about just for fun? Oh, just for fun. Now, that's the logo for Luna Park. Yes. That's the byline. And, of course, I've been working at Luna Park since I was a little kiddie. And who knows? Maybe it was Luna Park who uh, gave me the, 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 the spark 
to, you know, smile and wave and ent- entertain people. What did you do as a child at Luna Park? Well, I lied about my age to get a job there for starters, so I thought oh, I could be an actor. They believe me. <laughs> to, to do what? Where, where would child actors be used at Luna Park? Well, I had to call On the ghost the, I had did to, you come no, down no, as a, no. What? I had to call out the races for the races and the balloon races. So you'd fire a water pistol at these targets and then the horses would either run along or the balloons would go up and then the person who came first would win. And so you had to spruik because you couldn't just have one or two people. You had to have the full gamut of people to run these races to make it worthwhile. So that's where I got my spruiking chops from that. And I was only 11 or 12. I mean, I just grew very quickly when I was 11 or 12. And uh, so it was easy for me to lie about my age. And I also, um, because I was so good with my spontaneous... Um, Comedy? Yes. Um, they put witty me, repartee. <laughs> they invented something <laughs> for me, which was guess your age and guess your weight. And I really became very good at guessing people's weight and guessing their ages. You could upset them as well. Oh, I used to make than... people laugh so much about right. their weight because right. I'd... I, 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 I knew it because right. I got very good at it. And I was told by the managers, can you get some wrong because you're not giving away enough prizes and we really want to give people prizes. So I used to make jokes about getting it wrong and then I'd get it right, depending on whatever it was. Right. So I could give prizes away. But I started to guess people's horoscopes and I'd guess their personality and made their partners really laugh. So right. I just thought, oh, well, you know, I've got a bit of a gift there. So were you, you were playing a character. Were you uh, Hugh the, the soothsayer there? or <laughs> Yes, yes. I got dressed up in, you know, curtains, <laughs> draperies, which is what, you know, we're all famous for. You know, give us a bit of a curtain or a towel and we can turn it into a Queen of Sheba. Hugh so, Von Trapp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I just loved it. Anyway, and uh, down the road from Luna Park is the Independent Theatre. Um, and uh, I had already had an experience with the Genetian Theatre. Uh, and Colleen Clifford and Doreen uh, Harrop and Doris Fitton, all those women all got together and had talks. And they said, oh, there's this little child that we can use in Shakespearean productions. And they did. They put me in all these things. And I was... So you, you, I bet you played Fleance in Macbeth. Oh, I did, did I did. Yes. And I played um, Prince uh, Edward in Richard III. And uh, oh, I played all sorts of things. And I got to know all these marvellous actors, David Bowie, uh, not David Bowie, uh, David but, uh, Bowie. No, 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 David, David Bowie, Bowie, his yes. name was. But, uh, you know, and his mother turned out to be uh, 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 oh, Joan. Um, oh, she's a marvellous artist who won the Archibald a few times. And she painted a portrait of me, which is lovely, which I've still got. For the Archibald? No, no. Well, she, no. I think she was going to put in the Archibald, but it was so gorgeous. Right. We just decided to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> So what did your parents think of all this, that you're going off to Luna Park and the oh, no, They were quite happy, yeah. So we, I'd been living in Egypt with my parents, funnily enough, and I went to... Well, I, I didn't know this. Yeah, I went to... Oh, We've no, talked about a lot of things. Yeah, no, never... when I was a kitty, um, we didn't stay in Australia. My father had jobs overseas, so we lived in Holland for two years, Germany for a year, and Egypt for two years. What did he do? He was a doctor. Right. Yeah, but... Um, it was a cover. He was a doctor. He still is a doctor, but it was a bit of a cover for some other activities that he had with the government. So we can't really talk about that. All right. But 
there you go. That's why we lived in such interesting places at such interesting times during the Arab-Israeli war breaking out. Right. So I was... Um, You're 008, are you? Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> We're not talking about the size of my fingers. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly knew how to pack quickly yes. and get down into the garage because we had to do that on several occasions in Egypt. Right. So it was a really great experience for children gallivanting around the streets during the day and having to think about, you know, have I got everything if the bombs start going off? So we got a very good education very quickly. So you were in a, um, uh, an expat school there? Or, or yes, in or? Cairo American College, which right. is an American school. And they're very progressive there. I think they still are. So they don't uh, limit you to your grade. They were able to um, assess your intelligence and take you on the journey of education. And so I was very advanced because in Egypt there's not much to do if you don't speak well, or read. We school excursions to oh, the we pyramids. Did all sorts or... of stuff. We, got, we were on a school excursion in a bus and we got hijacked. So we spent oh, two nights fun. on a bus yes. um, at gunpoint, which was very exciting for children. <laughs> And they let us go once they realised that there were no Americans on board because the Americans all stayed in Mardi. And right. we lived in Somalik, which was an island in the middle of the Nile. So we were all foreigners. And once they finally figured it out, they just let us go. And we were such annoying children. They couldn't stand us any longer. So that was very funny. Yeah. How old would I have been? Must have been eight, nine, you know, right. because after that we had to come back and I went into primary school in Camaray and uh, the headmaster there said, oh, you can't, you know, you just, you know too much, you know more than I do. So he made me put on a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in primary school, which I directed and starred in and put all my friends in. And uh, I think we did Godspell as well, you know. And so he sort of found my talent. And so by the time I was nine or ten, I'd done a few productions and then I got involved with the Genesian Theatre. And the Genesian were um, started by the Catholic Church, were they? Or? I believe so. Or and I, they're, they're in a church anyway. Yes. So I and think they had a religious following. Yeah. And whatever Colleen Clifford was, she was really the leader of it all. Like, you know, Yoda, may the force be with you. I always think of her whenever I see Yoda in the movie because she's this funny little thing that pokes you in the stomach with her finger to get you to use the elephant's trunk my boy use your inner great character so colin yes. clifford was associated with the genesium was she absolutely yes she right. did mostly um, she directed mostly everything there right. Right. and uh, she was in things and uh, she really is the the nightingale that sang at berkeley square i mean she really is the embodiment of that song so it was lovely was she, to know a, a, her. An English woman, was she? Or? I think she was originally, right. yeah. Come out to Australia. And I think most of the actresses of that era were, like Doris Fitton of The Independent, she was most probably English first because her command of the language and the way she used her gestures. Yes. I've was, had a couple of guests talk about Doris Fitton yeah. oh. and the way the two talk yeah. at The Independent. That's right. Yeah. What a character she was. So I had all these interesting people around me as a little kid yeah. and I, my eyes were so open to the way that they did things and they were extremely professional in the way that they did everything you know right down to their diction so instead of saying you know something like um benedict you have to instead of saying benedict you just go benedict you know, you have to add these extra vowels into yes, it just to so get it, it to be carry, heard. carries over the, yes, uh, what, that's what right. would be the so, orchestra pitch yeah, to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no microphones. No. And um, 
one of the things that I'm famous for because of Colleen Clifford and all those lovely people, uh, you know, was the voice prediction, projection. So I, I, I don't... Or the prediction. Or the, the, the voice or the prediction. The voice projection. So I can really, I really can work anywhere without a microphone. Right. And I have done so on times when there's been power outages and everything. And it's like, I'll just take over the show from here. Thanks, everyone. Stand back and listen to this. And then I belt it out as loud as I can, you know. So I guess you didn't have any other career aspirations other than the stage. Not really, no, no, no. And I did, um, when I was 15, I was working so much and being paid that I said to Dad, look, do I really need to stay at school? And I was going to North Sydney Boys High by then. And he said, well, no, if this is what you want to do. And I said, well, it is. And he said, well, you can, you can be a professional entertainer as long as you promise me you'll never go on the doll." And it wasn't until I was 55, this is only, you know, a few moments ago, that I said to Dad, (laughs) can I go on the doll now? I'm going to guess your age. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, what are you talking about? I said, you made me promise I'd never go on the doll. He said, oh, you proved yourself when you were 25. Why did you wait another 30 years to even ask me if it was okay to go on the doll? But I still, you know. The first time I went on the doll was for the job seeker business. And that was a real shock, you know, to actually be on the doll for the first time ever. Yeah. So I've maintained a career in theatre since I was 15. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. What, what is it that seduces you about the stage and performance? I figured it out. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people think it's because of the adulation or the, the confidence and the applause. You know what it is for me? It's adrenaline. I really love the adrenaline and I'm such an adrenaline junkie. So I've managed to figure that out, which is great because it means I don't need drugs. I don't need to over caffeinate. I don't need to do any of those things. And when I don't have a performance and I think, oh, I'm not going to get my adrenaline from that audience um, that I'm not sure of and is the show going to be all right? You know, that's where the adrenaline really takes over. Um, so I just uh, sing to myself or try to make friends laugh. Doesn't always work. Friends don't like laughing at you, my jokes. But um, um, Lacage, you know, yeah. watching you, you had many, many fast changes. Oh, super true, fast yeah. changes. But you remained absolutely cool and seemed to thrive on the challenge of, yes, of getting the change. Yes, it's the adrenaline, done. you yeah, see, yeah, being yeah. able to set impossible tasks and manage to pull them off just rises up your adrenaline level. So. That's why I'm in show business, for the adrenaline, yeah. I certainly couldn't give two hoots about the applause or whether people approve of me or not. And uh, people make the mistake of thinking that's why I'm in show business, that I'm looking for approval, and it really is not the reason at all. So, uh, But I can certainly spot it in others. And it is an interesting thing when you're in show business to ask yourself seriously why. Why are you doing this? Because it's not an easy thing to do. It's a really hard career it's extraordinarily difficult and that's why parents try to talk youngsters out of it because you know from what they've read and their experience um it's it's one of the hardest professions to choose yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, it is it's, it's a wonderful industry but a really tough profession or have mm. i got that the other way around a wonderful profession but a tough industry well, to yeah. make your mark i mean absolutely you have to sacrifice a lot it might be a partner it might be you know a roof over your head uh, yes, whatever. yes, because of the, the the different places you have to go so quickly. So On you, tours, yeah, 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 and you can't really establish anything that might hold you down. But yet, people have done that. Uh, marvelous people in the business have done it. 
and are managed. But it usually takes two of them, doesn't it? Like Jill Perryman and her husband and um, Dolores Ernst and Rodney Dunbar. They, 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 all, they manage to have families and, and, and do it. So, The family business. Yeah, yeah. Which just takes you back to the vaudeville days when it was a family business and that's how it managed to uh, operate so that if one person fell down, there was others to lift you up. But when you're by yourself, you really you are taking on an extraordinary um, legacy to continue on. Uh, I remember when I got damaged um, during a casino show and the show had to go on because there was nobody to replace me. It was, nobody else fits the cost, fit the costumes. Nobody else could sing in the range that I sang and nobody knew the choreo or anything. There was no understudy and I'd hurt my elbow coming down on an abseil <laughs> And I hit the cave of this stage, which was actual rock. And I just continued on and, you know, no pain because of the adrenaline. And uh, anyway, later that night I went off and it was starting to swell up. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just put ice on it. And I did that for a few days. And then I was still performing. And then I ended up with the wardrobe lady saying, I can't get this sleeve on you. And I said, well, can you just adjust it? And she said, well, I can't adjust it any more than I already have because you've been swelling up on a daily basis. And not just your elbow. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I ended up in hospital in ICU because I was near blood poisoning. Oh. And um, I went, oh, no, the show must go on. So I unplugged myself from the... <laughs> the life support machines and went down to the casino, did the show and then went snuck, snuck back into the hospital and <laughs> plugged myself back in again. So I did this for a few days and on the weekend the nurse said and the doctor said, you don't seem to be getting any better and we can't figure it out. Anyway, so they suddenly realised that I wasn't resting 100%. Well, you put pillows under the, the, the sheets, did you? So they thought somebody was there. <laughs> yes, I did everything because I'm a real show must go on person. Uh-huh. So anyway, there you go. I mean, that particular show, I was a little jinxed, I think, because in the very first dress rehearsal, I came down another abseil, because I had a lot of circus tricks in that show, and I burnt the skin off both of my hands because my back wasn't attached, but I didn't know that. Luckily, there was this safety rope, and I grabbed hold of that and slid the rest of the way down, singing the entire time. And then I just had these dreadfully burnt hands for the first week of that um, season. But it was all right. I was wearing gloves. I managed. Well, you did some work in Queensland too. Was it? Did you work with the QTC? Or yes, with, Queensland Theatre Company. Did you do Hello Dolly. Yes, and, and applause, applause and oh, all sorts of things. It was marvellous. I got to meet people like Nolene Brown. It was so fabulous. Well, I she, mean, she was in your applause. Yes, yeah, she she, she was the, absolutely marvellous. The Lauren Bacall role. She didn't have a lot of confidence, um, as and I was playing the hairdresser role. So I was I was literally support because uh, I I convinced her that she was. Um, fantastic um and then she started to believe it and she was fantastic so she never really quite believed she was but i've got a video to prove to her one day how fantastic she was and i'm just waiting for the right time to actually deliver it to her and say here look back and see how fantastic you were because sometimes you need you do need a bit of distance don't you before you have a look at something again and oh yes most people do but not me i mean i'm a one-man band so i often have to record my performance because i don't always trust i remember i I remember every night of lacage i've done another copy i've gone home Uh, and watched i couldn't think of anything work the show's done i'm going home to have a wine yeah no i do because i i i like to make sure that what i think is being projected to the audience is actually what is being projected to the audience. Because sometimes as a performer, you can feel 
that it's one particular way, but it actually isn't coming out that way until you see the video and you go, oh, that felt so good to me, but it, the audience didn't read it. So. Are you ever completely happy with the performance? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes, I am. And thank, I think I have the video playbacks to, to thank for that um, because I can adjust things, you know, because you think something is that big um, and when you see the video you go, oh, no, it needs to be bigger or vice versa, you know, something that's too big and you need to make it more subtle. <laughs> So, yeah. when, when did you start doing drag? Well, isn't that a funny thing? I started back at the Genetian Theatre. So when I was very young, 11, 12, I was in a... Uh, I, I, was, I think I was the assistant stage manager on um, uh, Adventures in Windmill Land, directed by Ray Ainsworth, I think it was. I don't know, it was Colleen Clifford. Of course it was Colleen, because... She rang me up and she said, Hugh, I have to disappoint you today because uh, we can't put the show on because the mother's very ill. And I went, you mean Joy Ruby? And she said, yes, yes, uh, she might be a few weeks. I went, oh, well, the show must go on, Colleen. She said, yes, yes, but I can't do it. I don't think I'm up to it. I said, well, I can do it. And she (laughs) laughed. She nearly (laughs) fell off a chair and she hung up on me and I went, oh, okay. Then she rang me back and she said, I think you can, young man. So uh, I played Joy Ruby, the mother of Dirk Hartog, for three weeks. (laughs) Because Joy Ruby was, uh, you know, not well or something. And, uh, yeah, so that's the first time I did drag, playing the mother of uh, the boy who put his finger in the dike, strangely enough. (laughs) I should have been playing the boy, but I played the mother. (laughs) But do, do all right. That, so that was uh, you know standing by and filling in for for another actor. But um, what about doing it professionally? Oh yes. Well, um, I was hosting a talent quest at the Forest Lodge Hotel uh, when I was oh, I don't know sixteen or something like that, and because uh, I had the gear. I mean, I, I've always had a lot of money because I was very lucky to work in the industry from such a young age. So I had. I had this money, so when people needed something, uh, like a DJ, I was able to go, I'll do it, and I'd, I'd buy the speakers and the setup and the records and everything. So I've been a DJ the whole time, my entire life. It's my back filler, you know, when I don't have anything, I can be, I can DJ. So um, I was doing that, and I thought, oh, I've got to really stand out. So I started dressing up um, doing that, and then I turned it into a talent quest, and so I became a bit of a character hosting this talent quest so that I could sing uh, female songs because, you know, female songs are fabulous. And if you sing them as a male, people think you're weird. So I thought, well, I might as well be completely weird and dress up as a girl so I can sing these songs. And uh, you know, I got a bit of a reputation for being this funny host who had this talent quest. And then uh, a lovely person called um, Legs Galore legs galore came along to the talent quest to be a competitor and saw me and went oh my gosh you need to come and talk to the people at the Albury Hotel about what you're doing I said oh do you think they want a talent competition they said no 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 they have a piano bar and you're perfect for the piano bar and I went oh okay so I went and met um Lee and Nanette of the Albury and uh they said, oh, we've come to see you and you are so funny, you know, because I've made comments all the way through the talent quest and you know, made people laugh. And so the, I, I just got set up in a piano bar 
Anyway, so I played there for, I think, eight years. Um, yes, and, you were a regular fixture. Yeah, yeah, and I started off one night a week, but I ended up being about three nights a week because other people who performed there couldn't do their gigs because they were going away and stuff. And I just ended up being there all the time. Had you seen much drag before then? Not you, really. No, I, I remember the show bags. Do you remember the show bags? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were a well, miming group them, I mean, but that's in the Aubrey. Before my time. Yeah. <laughs> Of course it was, darling. <laughs> Way before your time, you're such a I babe. I remember <laughs> <the> show bags. <laughs> well, it was one of their many names. Right. I mean, and uh, it was started, interestingly enough, by somebody who was a window dresser at David Jones. Wasn't everybody a window dresser at David Jones? But a uh, very, very funny group, uh, 3D and, um, oh, another one. I think might have been Sydney Pastel made up the show bags. And uh, so I saw them and I went, oh, I can do this, you know, but I can actually sing. So uh, it, it made a bit of a wave on Oxford Street suddenly when there was somebody doing drag who could actually sing the songs. And so I wasn't really accepted by some people, but Legs Galore was fantastic and Tallulah Bright absolutely loved my show. Carolyn Clark, who was, uh, you know, all these... Un- Gorgeous performers who were so talented aren't with us anymore, unfortunately. So one of the sad things about working at the Aubrey all those years was that I had a very full address book of all my colleagues who were uh, great performers. And they're all gone, yes. which was a terrible tragedy that occurred during that time. So the, We're talking the 80s, of course. Oh, and yes. And, below HIV. Yeah, and I'd already been there for some time, so I was really in that scene quite deeply, you know. And to lose so many bar staff and the the performers, and it was just, uh, you know, quite an experience. And, uh, you know, to sing, to continue to sing cabaret during those tragic times, people often would come up to me and say, oh, Hugh, are you all right? Because I'd be in tears, you know. Thinking, oh my God, what is happening to all of us? Somebody else has gone. Yeah, and the audience that was so full would just be empty you know emptying anyway so i started performing imagining that the people were still there so i was performing to ghosts you know and then this new crowd arrived and uh, you know because the Aubrey had to advertise to new groups to get the pub full and it changed a great deal because their humor was not the same you know because when you're doing humour for a particular audience uh, you get very used to the sort of campy things you can do and um, then it changed so I had to change my comedy to deal with these new people and I remember a lot of hen's nights used to go as oh well, so they? many yeah and uh, thank you for coming I mean it was great of you, of the audience to be replaced but it certainly changed the way that my performance had to be and so I thought oh there's a new market out there now for me I've got to go out there and get away from Oxford Street and go and find this new audience and I did. I, I found it. And it was fantastic. And I'm not saying that the old audience was bad. It wasn't. It was no. glorious days. And I wish that it had just stayed like that. But uh, things as, change. As history yeah. shows us, you know, things don't always stay the same. But you, you were very outrageous. I remember being there some nights and you'd be singing, but on your head. 
Absolutely. Yes, and swinging from the chandelier. And I was famous for lying on the fireplace top, which was a, you know... Like a mantelpiece. A mantelpiece. And then um, doing a... a a, a flip, or a, a flip off it, and landing on my heels. Did you ever hurt yourself? Oh no! The adrenaline just lifts you up like a puppet on a string, which is extraordinary, and it does to this very day. Yesterday, I had to move some bookshelves, and I called on my adrenaline, and I lifted them, and I thought, "Oh, thank you, adrenaline." <laughs> I have bruising on my leg today, <laughs> and I didn't even feel it happen. So it does work, you know. Call on, call on her. <laughs> Come on, darling, I need you to help me to lift a bookshelf. Do you have shelf. a name for your adrenaline? Uh, well, I, yeah, well, the lovely Hugh Munro, which the is a Hugh. different spelling. I like to put double O's into the Munro so that I can draw eyes. Oh, okay. And you know, sign a really nice autograph. Right, right, right. But I've had Caravan Park, which is a lovely one, and Helen Back. I was Helen Back for a very long time. Um, and I used to perform at the Bodyline Sauna years really? and years ago when it was on the main street. And, and they have a floor show with that. Yes, yes. And that was me and Adam Mavros. And he'd play on a battery-operated keyboard so he wouldn't be electrocuted by the water in the shower area. And the shower area was the best, the biggest place in that old venue. And so we, we performed in there. I used to turn all the showers on at the end of the concert so that they were all running and I'd stand on my head and sing songs from the Poseidon Adventure <laughs> <laughs> to make it a very three-dimensional experience. But it was lovely. Well, were I mean, people interested? Well, what? The, were the gentlemen interested well, the, in a floor show? That's that what point? I... You, it, it was astounding that once they heard the strains of the cabaret they would come out right. come out come out wherever you are <laughs> and they'd come out in their towels and some of them would come out without their towels you're um <laughs> uh, you were the bit middler of Sydney, yes I apparently i i think i inspired her she heard about me and then off she went and did it herself yeah. with barry madelow and peter <laughs> allen and all those people i think she was doing it before then otherwise probably. you're aging yourself yes, that's a right. great deal but uh, i probably am a lot older than i think i am yeah <laughs> Well, look, <laughs> at the other extreme of the spectrum, yes. you also found success in children's entertainment. Oh, enormously. About, yeah. you know, the first time I laid eyes on you was uh, in Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. Yes, yes. Yeah, I yeah. mean, who would have thought? And uh, see, I hate auditioning. I think this is a very important part of the story. I really hate auditions because my adrenaline lets me down in a big way and it's 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 really for the stage and for the audience. It's not for the people who are trying to pick you <laughs> to, to be that person. Um, and luckily, when I went for the Simon Towns and Wonderworld auditions, I had this brilliant thought to wear the same clothes each time so they'd remember me, which really paid off because it was one of the reasons they picked me, I think, because I, I knew how to brand myself. Um, and I, so I was really ill. Uh, I had this dreadful flu or something, and probably from working at Bodyline. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I was very droll and pulled back, whereas a lot of people were trying way too hard, and I was in this uh, uh, frame of mind where I couldn't care less. 
And I think it got me through the audition. And the next thing you know, I was doing Simon Town's Wonderworld, which was really hard work. Yeah, well, let's, for the listener who isn't quite sure, I mean, it was a TV show for children. In It was like 60 Minutes for Kids, wasn't it, Evie? It was, and it was, a, a it was reporting produced show. in the host, same way a series as, of reporters. as news is produced. So we had to become journalists, which was a bit of a shock because, you know, when you're an entertainer, a comedian who sings, and suddenly you have to do these news stories. In and you a were news an original fashion. reporter too, weren't you? Uh, yeah, John, John O'Coleman. Yeah, and uh, um, there lovely was Edith. Edith Bliss, Bliss. and um, oh, was there uh, a Morris? Yes, there was. Uh, lots of wonderful. Pe- I'm sorry, I can't remember all their names. I wasn't yeah, expecting to ask about me that four or question. Five there, yeah. yeah, and uh, I was. I mean, we had a, a, a when you get together with people a reunion. Re- reunion. With Simon, uh, only about two years ago, Craig Bennett organised it with Jonathan Coleman. And Simon took me by the arm and he said, you know, you were the most prolific reporter I had. You, you made more stories than anyone else. And I did not know that until he told me. Did you have to produce them yourself or did you have yes. a team working with you? No, you had to turn up, you had to find out what the, the story was often just one line. You are making cheese today. You know, thank you, well, and an address. I, I saw one on YouTube the other day doing research. You know, you were talking to a woman who just collected uh, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah. And that's all you'd get is one line and the address of the person who you got to talk to. And then when you got there, you'd have to look at the locations and think, can I shoot it here? Is the background going to be telling the story? Uh, you know, how many backgrounds are there? And uh, is the person got enough talent to hold the story on their own or do I have to do it for them? So you have to analyse all that and then you've got to look at all of the product, whatever it is, to see if it's got a story um, and and how many there are, which ones you're going to edit because it is a three minute and you can't go for six. You've got to go for three. You have no choice about that. Um, And so you've got to make all those decisions and then the crew arrive and they will not help you. You have to tell them what you want, what, how to frame it, where they're setting up, and how long there is to do it. And it, it became, it's really hard. And then at the end of that, you've got to remember what was shot. So you have to write a shot list. You've got to almost do a storyboard. You've got to write the script. You've got to make sure it's all working. Get all the facts and figures. Get all the release forms. I mean, there's so much to do. And you have half a day per story. So it was too much for some people who weren't expecting that. And I ended up doing two stories most days because the other person had decided to call in sick. And that's how I ended up doing more stories than anyone else because I just kept going. And um, uh, which was great because I, I, I really have a huge library of stories um, that I did. But uh, I tried to put humour into them. And I tried to put songs into them. And I was told many times, do not sing. And the reason why you can't sing is not because I'm not a good singer, which is how I took it, but to do with copyright. Yes, of of course. course. So they didn't want to pay for that. So that's why it's do not sing. But I used to get quite a hard time because the producers did not want me to be gay at all because it's a children's television show. And they were very worried about uh, losing their reputation because they'd picked a gay person which is bizarre because i think i i connected most with you as a reporter absolutely uh, perhaps you did. I, I didn't yeah. know about my own sexuality at the time yeah. but but there was something about hugh on simon townsend yeah. that really spoke to so many people have kids. told me that they made a huge difference to their lives when they saw somebody who was like them on the tv so it wasn't fair that one of the producers 
was so mean to me on a daily basis, making sure that I would not confess or tell anybody. Um, and it turns out that that was harassment at the workplace, but it was never Simon. Simon was absolutely fantastic about all of that. He never mentioned it. And whether he was the one who told the other one to be mean to me, I don't think so, because no. we did get a new producer and that producer never mentioned it. So it was obviously that first person. I can't say their name, of course. Of course, of course. But uh, you're losing anonymity too, I guess. You're starting to be recognised in the street, are you? Oh yes, and that's it's. See, uh, doing drag is great because you're hiding. You've got a character to hide behind, and people don't really know who you are. And that's quite good because when you're in a a pub or doing shows around different pubs, you get these fans, and the fans are very interesting. They become so bizarre and when you are famous it's very hard to get these bizarre people to actually leave you alone they think they own you and i know it sounds like i'm being mean but i'm sure a lot of entertainers have come across strange members of the public who attach themselves to you and that's why some entertainers in america have had to get security because you know in the bodyguard remember she was an entertainer oh, yes, and she needed security yep. and i've experienced that where your life has threatened um because you've said something or you've done something that in all innocence and this person's taken great offense to it and wants to kill you and so a fame was something i sort of decided i didn't really want and luckily early enough so after during simon town's wonderworld um i was recognized often when I was doing normal everyday things and it's really uncomfortable to be recognized because you think what am I wearing what's my hair is my breath okay it's awkward so I decided that uh, being in drag was better because people who are in the audience don't connect with you after you've changed and you're leaving they don't ask you questions because you can say oh no no I'm just the dresser as you carry your drag bags out, <laughs> they believe you like there was a budget to pay a dresser. No, <laughs> at a pub. Anyway, so it's funny. Well, with your character work, you could play the whole staff. You could uh, give that it. illusion to yes, people yes. that you've got a whole team working with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. The, the masseur, the yes. dresser, the cook. And I, often, in the hairdresser. often in Australia, that's exactly what you've got to do. You've got to right. do it all yourself because, you know, you get to a place and they say, oh, you know, you can put on a fabulous show and they give you no budget. They just expect that it's going to happen. Yeah. And that happened to me in a place in Redfern. I put in the lighting. I put in the sound. I was exhausted. I put in all of this costuming, um, holding stuff and made a dressing room, put in the mirrors, put in the desks, put in the lights, everything. And I did the, f the first season with some people, uh, which cost money, of course, and um, then the second show, I thought, oh, I can have a little break ju just to catch up. And I put on a one-person show, and these people who were employing me said, oh, I don't call that a show. And I said, but it had this and it had that and it had the other. Oh, but where are the other people? I said, well, I can't afford them at the moment. I'm just having a break because I want to put on a much bigger show in the next season. They said, oh, well, you know, oh, it's a bit... And I think, so you don't like it? And they went, oh, not really. And I thought, well, okay. So I called up my good friend who has a utility and I took down all the lights. I no. took down all the scenery. No. I took out all of the stage fittings, 
on that very same night and they watched me packing it all up and they said where are you going I said well you don't like what I do so see you later <laughs> and they said but you can't take the lights there's people dancing I said well you should have thought of that that before you insulted me mm. oh and can you ask the DJ to stop playing please because I need the equipment back I'm taking it <laughs> And so this, these idiots who thought they knew what show business was watched me totally undo their club. So you're, you could be a diva when you want to be. Oh, absolutely. It's the only time I ever was. But I thought, no, don't speak to me like that yeah. um, and think that you can get away with it. Because, you know, in Australia, yeah. artists, we do so much yeah. to make ourselves comfortable and welcome in our own place. And if people don't appreciate it, well, I'm out of there. Yeah. So... <laughs> and we're seeing that a lot. Uh, well, we've always seen it, I guess, but with the pandemic too, you know, a lot of people expecting artists to do stuff for nothing. Oh, absolutely. You know? And I don't like to say it, but charities are to blame for that. Yeah. Uh, when charities started up with the AIDS pandemic, um, there was a lot of uh, people asking uh, entertainers to do charitable work. And, you know, we did some here and there and everything. And then it started to get a bit heavy on with all that uh, free work and you'd start to think hang on a minute uh, this is costing me money because i've got to put on makeup and it costs money makeup is expensive and it used to be even more expensive before because it was hard to get um and uh you know costumes and, and all those things you've got to clean them every time you wear them uh, otherwise they don't last and uh so and getting to places costs money you know because you've got all this stuff you can't just park in Sydney. Well, it, a, and look, and yeah. to do a half-hour gig somewhere yeah. might actually involve six hours of your day. Oh, the whole day. Yeah, yeah. it does. Because, and if they, especially if they want a, a, a special song for their charity, I'd have to write it. And, you know, the lyrics, and I'd have to record the backing track. And, you know, it takes ages. Anyway, and then you figure out you're not getting paid for it, and you go, oh, well, it's for charity. And then you realise, hang on a minute, if they really, really want me, maybe they should be paying for m me and then they can write that off. So I started doing that with people. And then I got this reputation for, oh, don't ask him, I know he wants to be paid for it. And I'd be going, oh, come on, you people. You should be paid for it too. You know, charities are a business. They're... They paid for the kitchen staff who delivered Absolutely. the meal. They paid for the people who put the set up. Yeah. They paid for, yeah. So I became very Mr. Unpopular because I was setting this precedent, you know. But I was still getting gigs because, and people would go, oh, no, we do want him, so we'll pay for him, but we won't pay for the rest of you. And so people's, you know... The looks I got from Cute people. noses out of jobs. Oh, absolutely. So it, it became a bit uncomfortable. So I just thought, oh, well, bugger everybody. I'm going to go overseas and live. And I went overseas. And, you know, when you get a charity gig overseas, there is no question of the payment. You get paid. It's just the way they do it. It's completely different, you yeah. know. So, uh, yeah. There you go. You've been you've been touring a lot of late with uh, theatre and education for kids. Oh, I mean, yes. performing for children is so magical. I mean, often you're the first theatre experience that a kid might have. So, so it's um and a memory that they'll carry forever. It's yeah. a, it's a really privileged. The position, very reason I do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm in a very good position because I've been working since I was a very young child. I've actually achieved the goals that I set out to achieve very young um I, I i really didn't have great aspirations but i've surpassed them quite quickly 
and then I kept thinking of more goals and I surpassed them and I went, oh, gee, you know, this is all lovely. And, and I started to remember that it's adrenaline that keeps me going, not anything else. So fame was off the list, which is very healthy if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've, I've had a great level of happiness through my career because I do what makes me happy. And it makes me happy to see an audience satisfied. And that experience that I was telling you about with the club that didn't appreciate what I was doing, it really soured me on adults, which is a sad thing, but it did. And I thought, oh, who's going to really appreciate me every time I'm on stage, no matter what I do? And it's children. Children do. They appreciate. They can see the effort you've gone to. You connect with their eyes. You 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 fill them with your energy and that's what theatre is all about it's filling the audience with your energy and they understand what you're on about so to do that for children is where I've ended up because to me that's what it's all about and I love it to this very you know I had to do a show this week um, two days ago for preschoolers and to keep them mesmerised these preschoolers for over an hour the staff can't believe it they go how do you get them to sit and look at you for an hour they can't understand how i do it well i think it's it's a control of the voice it's a focus of in yeah. a way isn't it and keeping their attention by with through variety you know yeah yeah and yeah. being authentic I oh mean, being authentic they can, they can yeah. spot bullshit a mile absolutely yeah. Yeah. and that's one of the great challenges of performing for children of any age is that you, if they are not authentic they turn away so primary school audiences in particular very interesting high school audiences oh <laughs> Talk about hard. Into the trenches. Oh, yeah. You've got to speak their language. You've got to understand where they're at in their area because they have such strong uh, mood swings in um, their communities, you know. So you can be in one suburb and do a show in a particular way and you just move down the road a bit and you have to perform the show in a completely different way to deal with that group with the same material. So you've got to change your attitude, basically to uh, connect yeah so uh, that's a great challenge which is why I, I never need to find any other performing outlet because I've found it I, you know performing to these children around Australia is just fantastic and the opportunity to tour as well it must be great seeing, oh, it's seeing a bit of your own country. yeah I've seen Australia around and around and around and around and around and um and it's you in a truck, really, just, just yes. by yourself? Do yes, just you, by myself. You, you so I have to set up, and... set, up, set up the show, have to make sure it's all lit. And, you know, if there's a theatre in the school, I turn it into a, as much of a theatrical experience as I can. But often I have to perform in car parks, in red dust, in the Northern Territory in particular. And afterwards you've got to shake all your scenery and costumes because they're all covered in red dust, you know. And uh, the scenery blows over sometimes if there's a quick northerly wind or whatever there is. And, you know, you lose everything. And <laughs> it's quite funny. And I guess you're calling on a lot of adrenaline too to uh, oh, yeah. pick it's, up that it's scent fantastic. and put it up. And... Yeah, because um, you're put into such difficult situations. You know, when suddenly you arrive at a school and they say, oh, by the way, it's up those three flights of stairs in the old library. And you go, three flights of stairs? And it is. It's three, you know, and you're dragging all this stuff up into this old library. So you've got to remove the dust from where you're about to perform. <laughs> it's like, it's like that it's, old joke about the uh, old prostitute. Yeah. It's not the work, it's the stairs. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. And so, yeah, and uh, you know, after a show like that, you go, 
do they really, you know, do they appreciate how much effort that was? Mm. And the children do, they always do. But the adults, mm. still to this day, adults are not really the most appreciative people <laughs> when it comes to, you know, they're not, so. <laughs> what, what, um, what, what do you consider a highlight of your many decades <gasps> in this industry? Wow. Um, um, there's been some really great shows yeah. uh, that were just fantastic. And I, I've been watching them because I videotape just about everything I do. <laughs> everything? Just about. Well, no, we're talking entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, there we go. And they, no, I'm, I'm serious. Here. I know. No, but so we're just joking. That's serious. It. Just serious. Very you. silly. Serious. Now, um, yeah, I, I, I watch some things back and I, they just make me cry because I go, wow, I forgot that was me. I played the father in The Sum of Us. Oh, really? Oh, oh my God. But and I was Jack watching Thompson it. in the film. Yes, I played Jack Thompson's role. And I was watching it and I, was, I forgot it was me because I shaved my head um, to have a huge bald patch. Right. And I... It was just this... You know, you know when he gets the stroke yeah. and he can't move and then he stands up and he talks to the audience and I just burst out crying. I, was, I felt so much for this person and I forgot it was me was you, playing yeah, that yeah, character yeah. and I was yes, so... Yes, it's a conceit of the play, isn't oh, it, that he, he yeah. comes out of the stroke and breaks the fourth wall and speaks oh, to the audience. So what a wonderful performance that I forgot that I had actually done. And uh, is, so, is it, is it, Why? Because is, that, is that age that you forgot that you did it? Well, you, I don't... Well, I, you know, you do a lot of stuff in your life, like yes. like you. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, people yeah. look at your biography and my biography and they go, oh, you couldn't possibly have done all of this. Yes. But we have. Yeah. Because we do things on top of each other. You know, you, how many productions have you been in when you're rehearsing another one at the same time mm, and you're mm, still in one, you mm. know? And, um, you know, when I was at the Aubrey, I had five other jobs, you know, during that eight-year period. So I never really stopped performing in other things. I was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Barbie show and all these things in shopping centres. And um, I was in the Druid's Rest with Maggie Kirkpatrick. You know, it sounds like I'm dropping names and things, but that's what that's we do. Right. I'll, get we, the, I'll get the vacuum cleaner We do out play with all these extraordinary people <laughs> yes, in, in amazing things. Yeah. And uh, you, you forget. And then when you when you look back at your life on your biog and you look at your videos and you go oh my gosh that was that's me you know those times when i played shirley bassey and did tina turner and all of that i mean the amount of effort it would be for me to do it now i'd probably have a heart attack but i used to do that full on you know and i'd look at the videos and i go oh my god was that really me doing that and it's um Another fellow who does impersonations, he he said I inspired him because he saw me doing Judy Garland and he was he, he was just absolutely in awe. He was saying, wow, somebody else actually can be Judy Garland when he saw me. So he said he it, it put him on this trajectory where he thought if, if somebody else can do that, I can do it too. And he worked on it and worked on it and now he does Judy Garland and he's really good. But I was his inspiration, which is lovely. Yeah. So we're thinking, wouldn't it be funny if we did two Judys together? Wouldn't that be fabulous? That'd be great. Yeah. Judy and stereo. <laughs> <laughs> that now, would be marvellous. If you put all of this down in a book and you, and you wrote a, an autobiography, what do you think you'd call it? Ah. Oh. Gosh, you know, I had I had thought about it all years ago, but I really I thought who would really want to read a book about me? I just don't know, and the, I had trouble finding the target audience. 
Uh, and that's why I sort of went off the idea. But um, <laughs> not a really great question, was it? I'm trying to think, what did I call it? It was, I've come up with strange names like, are, are you kidding? <laughs> In heels? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it, some of the things are, are quite unbelievable. I mean, I, I went to America, for instance, and a lot of people don't believe this story, but when I was 17, I went. And I had a budget to go and go to dance school and acting school and singing school in New York because where else would you go? And that's where you go. And I had enough money saved up from shows and I had a contract to come back to to do Paddington Bear at the Regent Theatre with Rabina Beard. Um, So I thought, oh, I'll go for a year. And anyway, so when I got there, I, I had planned to stay at the YMCA. It was in my budget. And when I got there, they said, show us your passport. And they said, oh, you can't stay here. You're underage. I went, what? And I said, I know what goes on here. I've seen the Village People movie. And they went, no, it doesn't, matter. Like it doesn't matter You know what you think. You cannot stay here. So I was pushed out onto the street on my very first day in New York. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I looked in the papers and I found cheap accommodation. And I went to where this was. And I asked to see the room and all that kind of thing. You know, I was trying to be as cool as a cucumber and uh, I was thinking gee there's a lot of um, interesting people in this venue and when I went down to the desk I said oh yeah this is pretty good he said well I'd let you up there to see the room but really you can't stay here and I said oh that's what they said at the YMCA is it my age he said no because you're white I went huh So I was in Harlem. Right. I mean, no wonder I could afford it. It was just the price was, you know, different. Anyway, so I didn't know what to do. And uh, I went to a hotel that I thought would be really good near Broadway uh, called the St. James Hotel near the St. James Theatre. And I went in there and I told them my sad story. And I said, so can you do something just so that I can stay here for a bit? And they went, yes we can put you in the elevator shaft room. Is that going to be okay with you? And I went, oh, yes, anything at all, you know? And so I <laughs> I was in this elevator shaft room, thanks to the St. James Hotel, um, with a broken window in the middle of winter. And uh, my milk used to freeze because it was, you know, next to the window. But I was there. And so I went to ballet school and tap school and jazz. And I went to you know, voice, I went to the Linklater course and that was a big deal, you know, signing up for the Linklater whole course, you know. So I got to meet Kristen Linklater and find all that stuff out, which was fabulous, you know. And um, anyway, so I thought, oh, I played Peter Pan. I think I'll go and um, see Peter Pan and I'll write a letter to say Peter Pan from Australia's in, you know, New York. And anyway, I got this uh, uh, phone call from the St. James uh, Hotel reception. They said, you've got a phone call, which really surprised me and surprised them too because I was the guy in the elevator shaft room. <laughs> and it was um, the management of Peter Pan who said, we've got two free tickets for you and, we'd, you know, we'd, you must come backstage afterwards. Anyway, so I went and I, I got to meet Sandy Duncan who was oh. playing Peter Pan and we went out for dinner and I met her manager, Jack Malden, who thought I was fascinating because I was this, you know, Australian with long golden locks at 17. And he said, oh, you really need to meet a friend of mine, you know. And I said, well, you've got my number, whatever. Anyway, the next um, day I met it, I bumped into him in the street and he said, oh, you know, I really want you to meet these people. And he... um. 
took uh, he organized a dinner and i went to this dinner and there were these people sitting around a piano and you know having a discussion and i was thinking oh fantastic and he said I, you've got to meet this guy because he'll you know you and he'll get on really well and i've organized dinner for you both so i went oh okay fine you know anyway so i went off with this fellow and we had a lovely dinner and he was so nice this fellow and uh, I th- we, we didn't really talk much about him. We talked a lot about me. He asked me all these questions and I told him all these things I've done, you know, since I was 11 to 17. That's a lot of stuff in seven years, you know. So he was quite mesmerised going, oh, you've done so much, you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so I was under the impression he was an accountant. <laughs> so we started an affair, you know, and I so I saw him... A lot. And he came to my little elevator shaft room because I thought, oh, well, you know, come with me. I'll, you know, so I'm a bit dominant in that area. You know, you know he, he laughed and he said, oh, you can't stay here. Pack up your things. And I did. So I went and I lived with him and he lived in this luxurious apartment, you know. And <laughs> anyway, so he said, oh, you have to come to work with me. And I went, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I'm, I've got, you know, this class, this class. This class. He said, no, you have to come to work with me because we've, we've got a job for you and you're going to work and we're going to pay you. And I said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. He said, we'll pay you in food instead of money. So I wasn't breaking any rules or anything. And um, anyway, so I I became the gopher for a show called Barnum. (laughs) And I've met the cast, I met everybody. And I realized that the very first people I'd met on the very first night that I had met this fellow, I had met Michael Stewart. Right. Cy Coleman, yes. they were all sitting around the piano with the producers of the show, nutting through songs. And the fellow that I went out to dinner with was Joe Layton, who was directing, directing it. it. Right. So, and he and I just, you know, once I suddenly had this job and I realised that Joe wasn't the accountant, he was the director, I suddenly became the assistant director. So everything that happened, he'd go, what do you think of that, Hugh? And I'd say, I don't know about that number. I think it should be cut from the show because it doesn't, you know. And you go, right, everybody, <laughs> Hugh has suggested this number is cut. So we're going to come up with something different. I said, I think you should give her a song. Anyway, so they wrote a song for this woman and, she, you know, it's in the show. So, and the she, rest is history. Yeah. So I, I had this influence on all of them. So... I mean, I tried to tell that story to some people when I came back home and they're just going, oh, don't be ridiculous, you dreamt it. And I didn't. It all happened to me, you know. And Joe Layden, of course, directed fabulous cabaret artists like Bette Midler and Cher and Diana Ross. So I got to meet these people. And I went all the way to Atlantic City with Joe, for instance, to watch the Cher show because he had to give her notes because she'd been doing some things that people were going... We need to bring the director back in. And so I had dinner with her and, you know, you know, and he said, Hugh said that you should do it this way. And he's using me as the... The sounding board. Yeah. Yeah. So I got big hugs from her and she said, oh, I won't let you down, you know. (laughs) So it gave me this thought. I thought, I do know what I'm doing. You know, so when I came back to Australia when I was 18, I was in Paddington Bear and, you know, here I was warming up like in my Capizio you know, leg warmers and being very professional and all these Australian people were looking at me going, and who do you think you are, you Munro? You know, and I felt like a peanut. And uh, I thought, no, I'm going to keep on with my ethics and, you know, go for it. And 
Yeah, so there you go. And you have. I you have, have, ever since. And it was a joy to be a part of that on, on one of those particular shows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the chat today. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. I'm glad I mean, we've got it down. I've it's got good. so much to tell you about America one day if you want to hear what happened to me. Because, I mean, you know, when you meet people like that and they, they actually realise you've got some talent, yeah. they want to use it. Yeah. And I actually got to use my talent quite a lot in America. So I was paid under the table, which is quite illegal. Yes, quite <laughs> so it's not something I really should talk about at all, but um, all those experiences helped me to grow. Well, it's decades ago now. Yeah, but look, today's word is respect. When you have talent, in other places in the world, there are people who really respect it. And that's something you've got to remember in Australia. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. Mm. And that's the lesson that I bring to the table today.